Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Charles Robinson, and welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. If you're working on what to do this summer, well, good for you. Vacation season is usually the time where we take a break from the nine to five and rediscover family. We know a number of you may be heading down to the ocean or maybe on a flight to some exotic locale. My childhood memories are wrapped in the backseat of a car with my siblings as we traveled for hours. Between arguing over what radio station to turn to during our drives, it is my mother's voice which cuts through the arguments. She would announce, it's quiet time. Books were our refuge. For me, it was about discovering some of the classics, like Swiss Family Robinson, The Jungle Book, and Treasure Island. You know, we would call this type of literature young adult adventure. On this show, we hope to pique your interest with some suggestions and recommendations from people you know. What would a summer be without a beach story? We'll take you to Cove Point at the confluence of the Patuxent River and the Chesapeake Bay. Carol McKay Booker looks at this community in Calvert County, Maryland. You'll learn about a recluse a Russian princess, and a dubious scam. The beauty of the area is marked by a lighthouse. There is a sandbar which invites swimmers into the waters, but unfortunately has claimed a number of lives. In our second segment, we get some recommendations on summer reads from familiar names you know at WYPR. We kick off our show with Samantha Zline, the manager of the Severna Park Library and the Anne Arundel County Public Library System. The system has 16 locations from Brooklyn Park to Deal and many branches in between. They've been serving residents of this county for 101 years, and yes, they just celebrated their centennial in 2021. We'll also hear from Heidi Daniels. She's the CEO of the Ida Pratt Library System in Baltimore, which is one of the oldest in the nation. I'm delighted to be joined by Samantha's line of the Severna Park, Anne Arundel County Library. First of all, Samantha, you deal with a lot of children during this time of the year. Talk to our audience a little bit about why they come and what kinds of things are they reading? Oh, yeah. Well, summertime, everybody's out of school. And a lot of times the parents bring them here to have them find something to read. And it can range from uh, they've got a signed reading where they have to read you know, the classics or they have to read uh, a very specific title to they just need to read something. So we're handing them things like, you know, Dogman or Big Nate or any of the others that are more like comic books or uh, just fast, fun summer reads, because we want to keep them engaged. You know, the big thing with summer reading is fighting that summer slide where they stop reading over the summer and they lose a lot of those vocabulary skills um, and language skills that um, that they're always doing during the school year. Uh, so, you know, our big thing is just just read something. We're always happy with it. You know, we still got the old standbys. Everyone wants their Harry Potter um, whatever the hot new movie is that summer, you know, Hunger Games a few years ago and <laughs> Divergent before that and all those kinds of things. Um, but so, yeah, we, we try to get anything and everything into their hands that we can. Uh, we have a suggested list that we put together for anybody who's just stuck, especially parents who may not be big readers. And so they don't know what their kids should pick up. Um, and we try to get some more modern things on there um, so that they've got a nice, a nice mix over the summer. But, yeah, our big thing is just just read kids. <laughs> <laughs> read some, read something fun, um, and try to find that book that fits your fits your style. <laughs> I want to ask you, Samantha, about this whole idea that young adults are looking sometimes for challenging reads, i.e., maybe someone who is going through a challenge in their life. 
Are you seeing a lot of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always seen that. I remember one of my first questions when I started as a librarian, and it, it caught me off guard because I had a young adult come in and they specifically asked for books where a character had cancer. And it just, it kind of threw me because I'm thinking, oh, it's a teen, they're just going to want something fun, you know, like a little pop romance or something like that. And they were like, no, I really want to read a story um, where that's the character's main struggle. And it just kind of surprised me. And that was, you know, 10 years ago. And I think, I don't think it's changed. I mean, we've had Again, popular books like The Fault in Our Stars, which is another one their teens are struggling with a health diagnosis. And then we've got things like The Hate You Give, where it's teens dealing with um, racism and abuse and things like that. So I, I think the teens want that because they get to see the world reflected around them in a story that's made for them also, um, because they're young adult novels. So they're written for teens and they're written on um, sort of the level that they're reading or they're under helps them with understanding these bigger like social issues, but by making it more relatable. Uh, so I think, yeah, I mean, teens come in looking for that because they, they want to know more. They want to get that information and those stories because that's really how we, I think we learn a lot better through stories sometimes than just reading, you know, encyclopedias and um, fact books and kind of dry history textbooks. Sometimes hearing it told, even if it's a fictionalized story, but a realistic setting, it can help them understand, empathize, and maybe even give them um, language to explain it later when they're chatting with their friends or their family. Sounds like you're talking about authenticity. Am I missing something in that conversation? No, I think I think that's 100%. And a lot of times these are authors that are writing either from their personal experiences or um, they've done their research and they're able to tell these stories. And the teens pick up on that. They know. They know if this is a someone telling the truth to them or someone trying to feed them a line, they know right away. And I think you can tell by which books are the most popular in those realistic categories. Um, and even in the fantasy stories, there's a lot of a lot of drama. There's, you know, fantasy stories that like, I mean, like I said, we've all um, seen Harry Potter and we know that that gets into some heavy issues near the end of it with the government and the, um, the politics and that story. And there's lots of teen stories that are fantasy realms, but they are focusing on issues of you know, censorship or um, like caste systems and things like that. So even if it looks like they're just reading a, you know, a fun sci-fi story, there's some, there's some heavy stuff in there. And again, the teens, the teens know that they can get kind of the real deal when they see, um, see the books that are written for them that are honest and tell them like, this is, this is a way society could be set up and maybe it is set up this way. What do you think about it? And it gets them talking and thinking. I note that, you know, the current generation is I don't want to say obsessed with you know video games and and role play and stuff like that. Are there books that allow people to explore that that possibility? Oh uh, yes, I mean we've got things like it's an adult book, but it's Ready Player One, which was the big hit, and they made a movie out of it that is all about the world of video games. So I don't know if that's that's more my generation because it's all re references to video games that I played. Um, and we also have you know all the dungeons and dragons books at the library that the kids can check out if they want to try to run their own um, role-playing games oh they yes we actually just did a dungeons and dragon program here last week and it was packed i actually had to turn people away which i was very sad about so if you know anybody who wants to gm at the library let me know <laughs> because <laughs> they really it's you know it's a great it's story it's them getting to tell the story um, so yes. And then of course, you know, if you want to go real old school, they're still printing the choose your own adventure stories, which are, you know, essentially role-playing stories. You're playing just like you would in a video game. You're making the choices. You're deciding where the character goes, but you're doing it in a book format. That's usually how I sell a lot of those books to the kids actually is, you know, you know, that video you know, when the parents go, Oh, all they do is play video games. I'm like, well, if you want to read, choose your own adventure stories. Cause you get to decide what the character does, which is I think the big draw in a lot of video games is they get to tell that character what to do and in their own life they're always being told what to do so it's <laughs> they like to have a story where they get to have a little control so um it's it's not that hard I think it's one of my favorite things about the job is finding stories that can connect to a specific kid because sometimes we just give kids books and say this is a good book or you should like this book but we don't really tell them why or it, maybe it doesn't connect because it, just because it connects with me, it's not going to connect with them. So I love having those conversations with readers about um, what they actually like to do in their free time and finding a book that connects to that um, because there's so much out there. It's, it's hard to, people try to like make one book fit for everyone and it really doesn't. <laughs> I want to shift gears because I think this has been one of the most unique years for librarians, booksellers, and 
and writers in that a number of communities across this country, unfortunately, have said they want to ban certain types of books. Let me get your your take on what that means for not just young people, but the ability to explore worlds maybe that you hadn't even thought of. Yeah, it's it's dangerous. It's and it's not something that any um, I think public librarian or any librarian is really happy about because those books, those stories, like I said before, those stories, that's where you get to see yourself. You get to see yourself represented. And if there are a lot of the books that are being challenged in these different places are stories of um, like minorities or um, just different groups and different experiences. And it really, it hurts those groups. It's telling them that there's something wrong with them or that they don't belong or they're not as important. Um, but then it also hurts everyone else because, I mean, I know I've tried to pick up and read many of those books that were, have been challenged and it's points of view. It's um, stories that I have never, I have no experience with. And it's amazing to read those stories and you get that empathy where you can say, you know, I have never lived that experience. Um, I just read all boys aren't blue by um, George Johnson. And he is a young African-American man who is, he's gay. Um, but so it's all about him growing up and his family and his community and what that was like for him. And that's one of the ones that ends up on the challenge list. But I read that and it was just, I had a lot of empathy. And it was one of those things where I'm like, wow, there's kids going through this out there right now. How can I make the library a safe space for them where if they ever feel like they need a place to go, you know, I want to make sure that the library is a community space that they can come to and know that they're safe, they're represented, there are stories here for them to help them grow. And there's stories that they can share with their friends. Maybe if they can't find the words to explain it to their friends, maybe they can hand them that book and say, could you just read this? You know, I can't, I can't even verbalize my feelings, but if you read this book by this gentleman, you, you'll understand me better. And it's, it's that too. It's that understanding that we lose when we start banning other people's life stories and telling them that their life story doesn't count. Samantha, you know, I'm going to date myself by saying, what is it? Fahrenheit uh, 451. 451. And I remember the movie and I did, ended up reading the book about how dangerous, and I'll say it like that, dangerous mm-hmm. book banning can be. And of course, if you come from a particular era and you think about the Nazis from back in the day and their inability to see beyond the rigidness of who they are, help people understand why this is not a path we really want to go down. Yeah. I'm just like you said there with the comparing it kind to like the Nazi censorship. um, Not only did they, um, you know, they're trying to say, you know, just don't read these books, but they're also, they're trying to stop people from thinking. It's stopping you from thinking when you're telling people you can't read this book, you shouldn't read this book. It's saying your thoughts should only go this far and no further. You should not think about other people. You should only think about yourself. And it's a very, it's a very, um, you know, self-centered kind of way of, of doing things. And when you cut people off from those point of views, like I said, they, they can't empathize. They can't think about that other person who may be struggling. They, you know, if you read a story about someone affected by homelessness and you've never been affected by homelessness, it can change you. You understand. You can, you know, have more empathy for that person and you want to help them. Maybe you want to help and go to a shelter. Maybe you want to give more money um, through your taxes to try to help people out. But if you never read those stories, those people don't exist to you because it's very easy to live in a bubble. You know, we like to say now that people are like in social media have their little bubbles, but we've always had those bubbles. And the more you stay in them, the less you can empathize with people who are struggling and who need your help. And then you've got things like uh, we were talking here the other day about the kind of hidden disabilities, things that you can't see on someone, the chronic fatigue or even autism or things like that, where they might not be obvious. And if you're not reading those stories about how those people live their lives, you don't, you lose that empathy to help them. And it's, it is, it's very dangerous because it means that people are only going to support themselves and other people like them. And it's, it just, it leads down a, right. It leads down a dark path that we're going to not be able to, you know, love and help everyone in our community. We need to be able to support our diverse community and everyone in it and not just us or people who look like us or people who think like us. We all have different points of view. 
and we all have different ways of thinking, but we can all get along if we just empathize a little. It doesn't mean you have to think exactly like that person or agree with everything they say, but read their stories and at least get that basic understanding. But if we cut each other off from those stories, I, I agree, it's a it's a dark path. That's Samantha Zlein. You can find her at the Severner Park, Anne Arundel County Public Library System. Thank you, Samantha, for joining us on Future City. Thank you so much for having me. Heidi, first and foremost, when summer season comes at the Interprat Library as a young child who lived in this city, it was an amazing place. Is it still an amazing place to come for the summer and to find books to read? Of course. it's. Uh, I think has to be a summer staple for families in Baltimore to come to the Enoch Pratt Free Library uh, and join our programs. And uh, we have changed the program a little bit, uh, but it's still the uh, place that we hope families pencil into their schedules uh, for picking up books, for attending programs, and exploring all the services that we offer. During the summer, you know, you, you not only get young, young, young children to come, but you also get adults come in. Talk about summer reading. What intrigues you when you decide to make that trip wherever you decide to go? And you said, I'm going to take these two or three books with me. What, what influences your decision? Well, for me, you know, I pick a wide range of books. Um, I am a voracious reader, not surprisingly. Um, I always tell people I don't get to read for work, <laughs> but I read um, a lot outside of work. And it certainly influences, uh, you know, my work because people ask me about what I'm reading all the time. Um, so I try to be well read so that I don't disappoint anyone, even though <laughs> my day job doesn't include getting to actually read. Um so I have a few key books this summer that I've either read or started reading that I'm really excited about and uh, the range from fiction to nonfiction. I, for me personally, I like to look through a variety of books. I know the stereotype is that summer reading is about the beach book. Um, and I think there's a definite place for beach books. I just like my beach books to be a little bit smart. Uh, so I choose books that, you know, I don't feel necessarily guilty about reading. Um, on the beach or by the pool or in my home. So wherever I am in the car or wherever, I try to pick books that um, are both fun, but also intellectually stimulating because, you know, summer, just like for our kids, I always tell my kids, you can't lose those skills over the summer. You know, you certainly need to have fun and decompress, but you have to keep your skill sets up. So one of the great things that Summer Break Baltimore at Enoch Pratt does is provide books for children and families to build home libraries. Um, that's been a key change for us is to focus on um, giving books as a reward for reading um, and encouraging more reading from your reading. Um, so, you know, I tell my children that I want to keep your skills up and I like to try to keep my skills up mentally too. Um, but it is summer. So you want it to have a little fun. So I do have some key titles I'm willing to recommend for summer reading if, uh, if you're interested. Absolutely. We want to hear what the CEO, you know, Pratt is on her list. <laughs> Well, so I'm going to start with a fiction book called Olga Dies Dreaming, and um, it's a debut novel by the author Zochil Gonzalez. And for a debut novel, this is stunning. And this, to me, is the epitome of summer reading for me because it's a smart but fun book. Um, the story follows Olga and her brother Pietro, and they're both a second generation um, or third, I think actually third generation Puerto Ricans living in New York. So you get a really deep dive into the sort of New York Puerto Rican culture. Um, Olga is a well to do, well known um, wedding planner. So she came from these sort of humble backgrounds in this uh, Brooklyn neighborhood of Sunset Park and um, becomes a wedding planner and is really successful. And her brother Pietro becomes a politician representing his neighborhood and uh, then goes on to be um, at the federal level as, as a congressman. So they're both very successful, uh, but their mother doesn't approve. Their mother has run off. They haven't seen her in years because she's become a uh, Puerto Rican independent uh a sort of guerrilla fighter and is actually wanted by the FBI um, and sends them these letters expressing her disappointment and how they've sort of 
sold out. So both characters have to wrestle with the success they've had. What does the American dream mean? Um, how does their Puerto Rican background influence them? Their relationship with uh, with their mother, with their father, uh, who you know has passed away, and and their grandmother, who essentially raised them. Um, and both of them have secrets that they're sort of hiding parts of themselves that they're not allowing out. Um, and Olga, as the main character, is a successful, independent, um, you know, middle-aged woman who lives in the big city of New York. So it has all of those elements of a sort of fun beach read um, and her relationship with her brother Pietro and her family is intriguing. But it also has a lot of really interesting history on the Puerto Rican independence movement, on Puerto Rico itself. Um, I learned something about Puerto Rico while reading this book. Um, and it has, you know, sort of political questions, bigger questions about who we are and what, what your identity means that uh, stay with you after you've read the book. So fiction, fun, but very smart and thought-provoking at the same time. I want to change the subjects for a moment. Yeah. Because I know you and I are of almost a like mind in the sense that when you hear the term banned books, your hairs go up a little bit. And I know as a librarian, it, it, you know, as I talked to you earlier, I said they were some communities are banning some of the classic books of our time. Give me your sense of where we are and what it does for folks like you who try to make sure that there are books available for anybody and everybody. So I think the key thing with banned books is for us to really think about why we ban a book and why it's historically happened. And we can't get away from the fact that it's a political uh, it's a political statement. It's a political movement. Um, and I think what we're seeing right now in this country is really interesting because we're actually seeing more banned books in the last few years um, and more conversation around what that means than we have in, in quite a while. Um, it's you know a time in our country where libraries, librarians, school libraries in particular are being told to remove books from shelves, um, whether that be because they're a classic book that has language that... Uh, offends and insults or because um, it's a modern book with important themes around the LGBTQIA population or what people term as you know race theory, critical race theory. So all of these fights around banned books are ultimately at their core about silencing political discourse and about stopping the free exchange of ideas. So for me, Banning any book is about impeding democracy because intellectual freedom is a key tenet of our democracy. And for us to be able to have a strong country, we have to be able to discuss and talk about and exchange ideas freely and not have uh, books banned because they disagree with someone's political ideology. Um, you know, libraries have always had a wide variety of books from a wide variety of viewpoints. And I think that that's what makes, you know, our, our space so sacred and so special is because we bring so many ideas together in one place, um, regardless of, of whether or not you like them. You have the choice to read or not read a book. Certainly, I don't expound every idea of every book that's in 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 my library, I don't believe that, you know, all of the books in our, our building are correct books, right? But I can read and decide for myself. And creating critical thinking skills in our youth is really important if we're going to have um, the ability as a society to, to make well-informed, thoughtful, empathetic decisions. So for me, you know, fighting for intellectual freedom is a tenet of, of my professional and personal life. I'm going to get out of here on this. As our society evolves, people have tried to suggest, and I know as a librarian, you, you kind of laugh when you hear it, people aren't reading books. <laughs> and that is probably the biggest misnomer I have ever heard. Is that is that true for you? Yeah, I think people are still definitely reading books, thankfully. Um, 
You know, I think we, in 2019, right before the pandemic, we saw a nine-year high in our physical book collection circulation. Um, and then, of course, during the pandemic, that shifted, but we actually saw a high in our ebooks and our e-resources, and we had a lot of new folks come as customers and community members to the library that we hadn't seen ever before because, you know, everybody was cooped up in their house and, and people started reading and checking the books out electronically that they couldn't get physically, although we also offered sidewalk service so you could still get physical books. Um, but we definitely still see people reading. I mean, I think it's such a critical skill for us to develop in our young people and, and for us to model as adults because they, you know, our young people look to us to see what's what's the norm, what's cool, right? And well, I mean, maybe not what's cool if they're your kid, you know, as I said earlier, my children definitely don't think I'm cool, but I'd like to think that someday they're going to reflect on seeing me read. Um, and, you know, I told my daughter not long ago, I'm never bored and I'm never lonely because I always have a book or two at my bedside. And I see her doing that same thing. You know, she's got three or four books always. She's already thinking about what she's going to pack for summer reading and what her summer reading recommendations are. So, um, yeah, I think we're still seeing that. And I'm so grateful because it's a really important piece of, again, building our society. I, people forget that even fiction reading, you build empathy in people and you give people the chance to see themselves in literature, but also to experience worlds that we might not ever experience without picking up a book and reading about it. I've been talking to Samantha Zline, the manager of the Severna Park Library in the Anne Arundel County Public Library System, and Heidi Daniels, the CEO of the Ina Pratt Library. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City. You know, we have to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to hear from a pair of familiar names to WYPR listeners. Lisa Morgan is the host of The Weekly Reader, and Tom Hall is the host of Midday. Once a month, Hall asks a simple question. What are you reading? A lot of people have ideas on what books you should read over the summer. Morgan Reed is an avid reader and has some suggestions to stuff in your beach bag. Hello, everyone. My name is Morgan Reed. I am a health coach from Montgomery County, Maryland. Here are my three book recommendations for the summer. Atomic Habits by James Clear, a great book for self-improvement while creating and sustaining habits that will guide you towards success. It explains how to break bad habits and establish new ones that are individualistic. If you are looking for a guide to build positive or beneficial habits, I can't recommend this book enough. The second book is Gifts in Brown Paper Packages by Chanel Parrish Brown. This book motivates young women through adversity, whether it may be an abusive household, family dysfunction, drug addiction, or mental illness. A great novel with an excellent story. Third one is Insecure in Love by Dr. Leslie Becky Phelps. This book is mind-blowing. It breaks down the attachment theory, which is how we handle our emotions and communicate verbally and non-verbally in any given relationship. It's extremely helpful in all relationships professionally, intimately, and platonically, and one step closer towards self-awareness. I hope others can enjoy these great reads like I have. Happy reading, everyone! We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On today's show, we're offering you some clues on some books you might want to consider as you head out on a vacation. Well, we were trying to figure out who to ask about books. Then it dawned on us. The guy who comes on before me, Tom Hall, and the lovely Lisa Morgan reminds us books are essential. I am delighted to be joined by Tom Hall, who is the host of Midday. Normally, I'm on his show, but guess what? We got him on Future City. Tom, let's talk about summer reads. 
what kind of things always intrigue you about uh, books you want to read over the summer? Well, you know, first of all, Charles, um, thanks for having me. It's great to uh, have the tables turned here because uh, I do appreciate all the times you've been on Midday to provide political analysis, et cetera. Um, when it comes to reading, you know, I read a lot of books for the folks I talk with uh, on Midday. So the summer isn't really all that different than uh, the other seasons of the year. Um, for me, uh, I am not the kind that 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 seeks out the sort of light stuff in the summer. Um, I don't really change my habits reading wise when it comes to summer as opposed to any other time of year. Um, I want great writing. I want good ideas, new ideas, interesting, imaginative ideas. Uh, and I want topics that are either nonfiction or fiction, uh, just really compelling and stuff that I haven't encountered before. Um, and, and, you know, the great writers are able to do that. And I'm very blessed on midday to have the opportunity. Basically, anytime I read a book, I get to talk to the person who wrote it, which is, which is a great, a great blessing. And, you know, so when I, when I talk to folks, be it a novel or a nonfiction book or a poet, uh, about a collection of poetry, um, it's always fun to sort of dig deep and, and get inside that person's head to figure out, you know, what the inspiration for the book was, what the circumstances uh, were when he or she was writing it. Um, I, I just really enjoy that, that kind of stuff uh, in, in all genres of books. So I'm, I'm, I feel my, I, I consider myself very lucky uh, to be able to have the opportunity to talk so many, to so many folks who write so many great books. Did you have any aha moments, if you will, in reading uh, a book and you said, Oh, I didn't expect that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I'm reading novels and I talked to uh, to Alice McDermott about this, who's one of my favorite novelists. Um, she wrote a book, her last novel is called The Ninth Hour. And then her most recent book uh, is a book called What About the Baby? And it's about the art of fiction writing. And one of the, the, the uh, uh, revelations she had in that book, which I think she credits to E.M. Forrester, uh, is she says that there is a difference between a story and a plot. So I was, I was interested in, in what that distinction was, and the way she describes it is uh, the king died, right? That's a story. The king died, and the queen was so heartbroken she couldn't function for the next three months. That's a plot because then we don't get, just get the fact of what happened. We get the consequence of what happened. And I just thought that was really interesting. That for me was an aha moment. You know, the, the distinction between just telling the story, she says, you know, stories are easy to come by. You pick up the New York times. There's plenty of stories, the Baltimore banner, the Baltimore sun, plenty of stories. You watch MPT, plenty of stories, but plots are what makes uh, uh, a great novel, great. Uh, what happens to these characters and how they react in the course of what's going on uh, is what makes it for interesting reading. So that's one that I could think of. I want to ask about this this whole idea that you know there is, if you will, a sense that people aren't reading. I beg to differ with that concept. I'm assuming you do too. I do because. It is astonishing to me how many books are published in any given year. Um, it's thousands and thousands of books. In my position uh, as the host of Midday, and then I do a, a show once a month called uh, What Are You Reading, where I talk to authors and celebrities and people about what's on their you know, bedtime, bedside table. Um, I, I get sent books by publishers that I don't ask for, and I get... Uh, dozens of emails every day asking me to consider reading this book or that book and interviewing the author on our show. So in the course of a given month, uh, literally, I will have hundreds of people reach out to me and say, I've got a new book or my client has a new book. Would you consider reading it? So for me, the big uh, challenge is winnowing that huge list down because I can only read so many books in my life. Last year, I think we did something like 60 books uh, on midday in the course of 20, 
21. So uh, I'm reading constantly, um, but it's, uh, you know, independent bookstores are doing uh, just fine. Everybody sort of thought that Amazon and for a time Barnes and Noble was going to, you know, they were going to wipe the independents off the face of the earth. New York Times just had a big piece about how independents are doing well. The Ivy Bookshop here, Greedy Reads here in Baltimore, a number of independent bookstores are thriving. Um, so I think, you know, just the, the, uh, the, the, the breadth and scope of what people are writing about, uh, the, the, fact that, uh, the fact that so many books are being published indicates that somebody who's paying for these things to be published uh, has great optimism about the number of people who are reading. Tom, one of the things that you do quite well, and, and I've complimented you on this, is the ability to find Baltimore-based writers and to showcase their work to a much wider audience. How does that, how does that evolve, if you will? Well, I do think it's important to, to concentrate uh, on all uh, genres and, and all aspects of the writing profession. So we've had people uh, on the show um, you know, Louise Erdrich and uh, Elizabeth Strout and uh, uh, Alice McDermott, um, people who've won the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize, uh, people who've won big national awards. But then I'm also very proud uh, to have spoken to Ann Tyler on a couple of occasions from here in Baltimore, from Madison Smart Bell, another wonderful local writer. I mean, these are people who are extraordinary writers. They happen to live here um, just a month or so ago. I interviewed uh, our good friend John Waters about his latest project, which is, which is a novel. It's the first novel he's ever written. The other books have been kind of memoir, uh, you know, nonfiction books. He's written a, a very funky and funny novel called Liar Mouth, and we talked about that. So, you know, talking to folks uh, who are at the early stages of their career is interesting to me. Talking to folks who are at uh, the later stages, you know, people who've already enjoyed a great, uh, great deal of success, uh, be they from Baltimore or from anywhere else is, is a thrill. But I do think that there is a great literary tradition here in Baltimore and a great literary scene. Um, the, you know, the arts in general, you can make the case and uh, my good buddy, Fred Lazarus, the former president of the Maryland Institute College of Art, always used to say that the, 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 vibrancy of the art scene in Baltimore, in the city of Baltimore, um, is actually bigger than it should be given the size of our city. You know, We're, we don't have the kind of, we don't have 10 million people like New York. We have fewer than 600,000 now, but we still have an incredibly vibrant art scene and the literary arts are very much uh, part of that scene. The folks over at City Lit, the City Lit Project, you know, they do a great job promoting uh, the literary arts, the bookstores like Ivy Books Bookshop, uh, Greedy Reads, they do a great job of hosting authors and uh, lectures and uh, creating a lot of excitement. So uh, we're very lucky here in Baltimore. That's Tom Hall. He's the host of Midday. He comes on before us on Future City, and we are delighted to have him talk about the things that he's reading and why he's reading them. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Charles. I'm glad to be joined by Lisa Morgan of WYPR. She hosts The Weekly Reader. For those of you who don't know, or maybe not old enough, that was an actual little pamphlet we used to get as kids to let us know what we should be reading. Lisa, first of all, thank you for joining us on Future City. It's my pleasure, Charles. Let's begin with Summer Reads. Are these the kind of books that you kind of go, well, I know I should be reading it, or is it more like, I'm going to try this one? <laughs> well, I've always thought it's funny, you know, I think when people hear summer read or beach read, they tend to think of like light stuff, funny, humorous, but I've always seen the summer as a time to kind of catch up on some of the books that you might have missed along the way, or that you might have some extra time to read. So I like to keep that as broad as possible. I mean, I'm the kind of person who would read Ulysses on the beach in Mexico, you know, so maybe, maybe I'm a little strange, but I think, I think every book is appropriate for, and, and the most important thing is finding 
that book that's right for you because I really believe that there's a book out there, something, you know, kids, people say that kids don't like to read, but I think they've just haven't met the book that will draw them in. And those of us who grew up reading know that that's true. And I just remember all the things that I read when I was a kid that made me want to explore more books. And okay, I'm gonna stop you right now. Did you read Little Women as a summer read? (laughs) (laughs) I would read Little, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big one. But yeah, that's a, you know, that's a classic. People love it. It's if you haven't read it, find some time to read that, you know, but, um, you know, all the classics are great. Sometimes people think they've read things and they haven't read them, you know, and they, they think, or they think they're going to get to it, but they don't. So that's another thing that's great for the summer to read. I have, um, you know, so many things as we get so many books and there's so many books that are released every week in this country and around the world. It is really hard to keep up. And of course you can look for, you know, things that win literary prizes to guide you or, or things that your friends recommend. One of the things I miss most about college was being in a group of people that were constantly reading interesting things and we were passing books around and sharing things. So now I feel like I've got to do a little bit more of that work myself, but it's always a pleasure to find things. And I think one of the great things about Baltimore is there's so many writers right here at home to check out. If you don't get a chance to like look at the local shelf at all the great local bookstores that we have that are always, you know, and the people that work there are always happy to recommend something either local or from around the world. And I think the more broadly you keep your tastes, the more likely you are to find something really special that you didn't know you loved that's out there waiting for you. I'm wondering, was there ever a book that gave you an aha moment? Oh, lots of them. Uh, You know, I was thinking one of the books I wanted to talk about today um, is actually inspired because I I don't like most, I, I hope kids in America grow up at some point reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, I read it, I think maybe in middle school or something. And I just was so intrigued. I thought, here's a guy I thought I knew about, and I didn't know anything about him. And so that sort of led to an aha moment of, I want to learn more about, I want to learn more about Malcolm X. And I want to learn more about what he was about and what, what he really was. Now, of course, you have to wait for the right book to come along sometimes to answer that question. And I would recommend The um, the Dead Are Arising, which is by Les Payne with his daughter, Tamara Payne. And it's kind you of- You know what's funny about that? I yes. knew Les Payne. Oh, I And bet. I know his daughter. Oh, wow. And, 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 and I know that Les, God rest his soul, and uh, um, and it is a great book. I haven't read it. So now you've added another book to my summer reading list. It's incredible. And if you were intrigued by the autobiography, I would recommend this book as a further exploration of just the incredible life of Malcolm X and people around Malcolm X and how there's just much more there than what you tend to get in a, you know, pop culture vision of Malcolm X but that so that's that's the kind of book that I would I would highly recommend and you're very lucky to have met Les Payne let me let me ask this question because I'm always because people always are interested like well what are some of the more intriguing books that you've read well I met this guy named Van Jones and he writes books he's from out of Washington DC and it is a hysterical comedy I'm rolling on the floor because he's talking about meeting Jesse Jackson on an elevator and the guy who's the main character, he watches Sports Center, which is this ESPN show. And he goes, you know, I think I know that guy from Sports Center. And so when they get off the elevator, all these reporters come around him and start interview. And he asks the guy, says, hey, who's that dude? He goes, it's Jesse Jackson. He has no idea who he is. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. Wow. The, the fun part, it, and I'm wondering, do you do you read just for pure enjoyment and 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 to get those kind of stories? Well, I mean, no, I, I read I sometimes I read things that I'm very interested in. Um, 
and they can be hard. I mean, there's a lot of hard truths out here. We know, I don't know how many of us are taking a stab at the 1619 project. That's an incredibly difficult read sometimes, but I think- It's um, on my shelf. Why are you listing all the books? You must be of similar tastes, I guess, you know, but I mean, that's an important book to read and it's not a lot of fun, um, mm -hmm. but I think that's the kind of book that I, I would like it if many more people read that book and had more exposure to that sort of hard truth telling. Um, you know, on the other hand, I'm like everybody else. I love a quick, fun, happy book that makes me laugh or makes me smile. Um, Andy Beanstock of WIPR introduced me to a Scottish writer a long time ago. I don't know how, he just, you know, he's that kind of guy who I became obsessed with, Ian Rankin. And because of Andy Beanstock, I have read probably 20 books by this author. That's crazy, you know, but I took his recommendation and I ran with it. And now I'm a big fan. He still writes books. You can get on the Ian Rankin train anytime you like with Andy Beanstock's approval. And um, those books are fun. They're mysteries. They're about a detective in Scotland. But so that's not exactly the deep, deep stuff. But um, I like that stuff, too. I also one of the books I really wanted to recommend is by a local author named Shay McCoy. And it's mostly photographs, but it's a great, it's called West Baltimore Ruins. And Shay McCoy is a very talented local photographer. I think, you know, she's bigger than Baltimore. She's, I think she will hear her name for years to come. And she's put together this, it's like a love letter to West Baltimore. It's beautiful color photographs of buildings that, we all drive by or walk by every day if we live and work in Baltimore. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of decay, a lot of ruin, but there's also a lot of beauty. And as a proud resident of West Baltimore myself, I think this book is just wonderful. And I hope more people get exposed to it. It's um, she's just a very talented. She's got an eye. And, you know, sometimes people see things around them. That you need to take a moment you do well to take a moment and look at them yourself. And I just really appreciate this. I can't say enough about it. She's a wonderfully talented woman and um, I hope lots of people get a chance to see her book. Well, one thing's for certain, you know, they called Baltimore the city that reads. Yes. And you and I have been reading all long, long time. Yes, indeed. And so <laughs> thank, thank you, Lisa, for, your recommendations and what 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 you bring to WYPR with the weekly reader. Why don't you give people a quick primer on if you listen to the weekly reader, what you will get? Well, we do mostly um, national authors. Uh, Marion is a local author herself. Marion Winnick, who co-hosts the show, so she doesn't like to get into um, the local thing on our show, but. There's luckily lots of places like this on, on WIPR where you can hear about things that are local. Um, and we do a couple of books every week. They're usually themed somehow together, but we, we stretch that a little bit just to include as many books as we can. And you'll get a kind of a nice little capsule review and recommendations, and you can always access our archives. So there's literally hundreds of recommendations waiting for you at WIPR.org. Thanks, Lisa Morgan and Tom Hall from WIPR. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WIPR. We have to take another break, but don't you go anywhere. So let's hear from Tom Hall on his summer reading list. I'm Tom Hall. I'm the host of Midday and What Are You Reading here on 88.1 WIPR couple of things that I can't recommend highly enough, books that really, really were moving to me. One by an author who lives part-time in Colombia, part-time in Nigeria, the great Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She wrote a very moving book called On Grief, and it's a reaction and a response to the death of her father. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book, a non-fiction book by a great fiction writer. Uh, as for fiction, uh, I, one of my favorite writers is a guy named Jabari Asim. used to live here in Baltimore. I met him back in the day. He was the editor of Crisis Magazine at the NAACP. He's now teaching uh, in a writing program in Boston. His latest book is a terrific novel called Yonder. 
It's about a slave community in the South uh, in which these characters are terrific and they come to life in just a beautiful, beautiful way. Um, Michelle Zahner, who uh, fronts a band called Japanese Breakfast, wrote a terrific memoir, uh, again, about the death of uh, her mother. So I'm, here I am recommending two books about deaths of parents, um, but they're both beautifully done. This book is called Crying at H Mart, and it's about how Michelle learned to cook Korean food in the style that her mom used to make for her when she was a little girl, uh, and in so doing, uh, maintained her connection to her mom uh, after she passed. Uh, another book by a terrific writer and historian and lawyer from Harvard University, Annette Gordon-Reed, wrote a book called On Juneteenth, which we've just recently celebrated. And this is a memoir of how her family from Texas used to celebrate the Juneteenth holiday when she was a little girl growing up. And it's a terrific, terrific exploration of what on uh, what the, the holiday of Juneteenth means. And then finally, I'm gonna recommend Louise Erdrich, wonderful writer, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, a book called The Sentence. It's about a group of folks who work in a bookstore in Minneapolis. She happens to own a bookstore in Minneapolis. So it's based on uh, a real place and it's a fascinating novel. So I think you'll enjoy any and all of those titles. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. If you're headed to the beach, well, you have to have a beach story. How about one in our own backyard? Carol McKay Booker has penned an incredible tale about Calvert County, Maryland. It has a little bit of everything you want in a summer read. A little mystery, a scandal, and how about a Russian princess? I am delighted to be friends with Carol McKay Booker. First of all, Carol, what a wonderful book you have. Why don't you tell the audience what the name of the book is, and we'll talk a little bit about where it is. Thank you, Charles. It's a delight to be with you. The book is Cove Point on the Chesapeake, The Beacon, The Bay, and The Dream. I want to tell people that this is down in Calvert County. And if you've never been down to Calvert County, it is one of the most beautiful spots in the state. And um, uh, it took them a while to build the, the lighthouse. But why don't you explain where the actual Cove Point Lighthouse is on the Chesapeake Bay? Cove Point Lighthouse is on a, uh, a sand spit that stretches out into the bay at its midpoint between Baltimore and Norfolk, just a few miles above the mouth of the Patuxent River and Drum Point. I know a lot of people will know it as one of these unique fishing spots down on, uh, on in Southern Maryland, but you kind of chronicle its start, its mission, its uniqueness, and probably one of the greatest summer story reads I've ever read because a lot of people came there to spend their summers down in Calvert County. Explain why people were drawn to the area. Well, Calvert County was, and I think still is, the most rural county in the state of Maryland, but it's only 60 miles south of Washington, D.C. And around the early 30s, people in Washington were, were looking for a place to get out of that humid summer heat that we're all very familiar with if we work or live in Washington. And other beaches north of of uh, Cove Point, Chesapeake Beach, had had their heyday in the 20s. A railroad came down from DC to Chesapeake Beach. Other beaches were established, but people were looking for more and more. There was no bridge at that time across to the Eastern shore. So there was no going to Rehoboth or Ocean City for the, the average person. So, a, a developer who was a terrific entrepreneur, probably the, the most diverse person 
county ever saw. He was a state senator. He was a fishing boat captain. He started a yacht club, a bank, and he was a developer. His name was Cook Webster. And he decided to build or develop a community along this cove, right next to Cove Point, where the bay kind of comes in and it's 99% of the time tranquil. And a beautiful, he called it the most beautiful beach on the Chesapeake Bay. And in that respect, he wasn't lying. Now in some of his ads, which were a quarter page in the Washington Post, he did fib a little bit, but they called it not false advertising, but puffery. Like he said, um, no jellyfish, well, get out of town. By the middle of the summer, you're gonna have jellyfish in the bay. But still, there's the best fishing. He was telling the truth about that. It is and always has been some of the best fishing on the Chesapeake Bay. So he lured bureaucrats, people who worked for the government down here for summer homes. Over time, more and more people made it permanent homes as the roads became better and people could travel the distance between here and Washington in an hour. And uh, about a third of the people now live here full time. But it's still a tiny community, 179 property owners. I want to talk about the book and how you weave this very unique tale of its oddities. And I, that's the only way that I, I could describe it as oddities, because first of all, you talk about the first inhabitant there who was this unique recluse that nobody even knew he was living there. That's right. Benjamin Catterton, back in uh, the 1800s, was discovered by state tax assessors who came down to look over the only thing that was here, which was uh, farmland, plantations. But they did tax them at the time. And they come upon this man living among the tall pines. He had never been north to the county seat of Prince Frederick. He had voted only twice in his life and his candidate didn't win. So he figured, what's the point? And he never voted again. He had been to church only twice. He figured he didn't need that either here in these, um, this sublime isolation of Cove Point among the pine trees and the bay uh, breeze. He was the monarch of all he surveyed, as he put it, and he saw no need to go anywhere else. That's just one of the tales in this book. Probably the biggest tale is about the cover. You know, uh, Carol, when you sent me the book, I said, is that you on the cover? And you said, no, Charles, it's the Russian princess. I was like, what Russian princess? Without giving away all the great details in this book, explain why Russians were down in Calvert County. Well, the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks kicked out all the well-to-do people and murdered the first family in 1917. And after that, you, you, you had a tough time living there if you had been among the aristocracy. Well, one lady, a princess, who did manage to get out because she, she divorced her first husband, who was a prince in the czar's court, and she married a foreign correspondent from Germany. He got her and her two boys out. They came to Washington and she was an expert in iconography, all those beautiful murals that you see in Russian art. And she went to work at Dumbarton Oaks and somehow she saw those ads or heard about those ads for this place. And she always remembered the Dasha she lived in outside of Moscow and the starlings and the other birds and the peace and quiet of the countryside. She was looking for that here and also a beach for her two sons. So she came down and she was one of the first people to buy a property. And, and that's the Russian princess. And then many people from the Washington Russian community, which was concentrated around where St. Nicholas Church is now in um, Massachusetts Avenue, Wisconsin Avenue, they also came down and they had been part of the czar's court. Well, let me say this. 
what's a good book without a little controversy? (laughs) And you, you chronicle some of that controversy, probably the one, uh, well, there were a, there are a couple of controversies and please read the book. So you can go, really that happened there. And that's what, that's what kind of got me going as a great summer read. First and foremost, you know, People were trying to make a buck down here in Cal- in Calvert County. Um, tell tell the audience a little bit about this whole idea that there was titanium, if you will, just laying in the sand. Yeah, this um, engineer who uh, had sort of left Indiana under uh, a, a shadow. Uh, he had been indicted. He got out of that and came to Washington. Worked for the government. Then suddenly decided to promote the idea that he had prospected the Chesapeake shore. He wasn't even that kind of an engineer. He was a gravel contractor. And he he leased some land in a marsh, the Cattail Marsh, which had a lot of uh, muskrat. That was the biggest thing down here, catching the muskrat. I want everybody to understand what she just said. She said muskrats, which was one of the, um, um, if you will, one of the um, the, the mainstays of, of gaming with yes. uh, uh, in the state. Yes. And Both for the meat. Yes, and the, the fur. fur. And the fur. <laughs> Especially right. with the, the shiny black version of it. But if you went into a restaurant, you might find it under another name that you'd be more uh, find more appetizing. Rather than muskrat, they'd say marsh rabbit, something like that. But it was very popular. Yeah. This is so hysterical. Because remember, this, this guy was trying to figure out how to make some cash. Oh, absolutely. So he goes in there and and he he sells securities in Maryland. He's in, he incorporates as a titanium ore incorporated and he sells securities all over Maryland and a lot of people bought bought these. In fact, when I was researching the book, I called the register of wills to get some information on some of the heirs of these people. And she she says to me, yeah, I understand your you're um, researching the titanium mine. I said, yes. And she said, you know, I've had this thing on my desk for years and I didn't know what to do with it. It was one of the stock certificates her aunt had bought into this mine. That's how popular the whole idea was here. And then it turned out to be a complete sham or scam. Take your pick. There was no titanium there whatsoever. There's more titanium, I like to tell people, in my two hips than they ever found on that beach. I hope the audience, if they're looking for a great summer read, as either they're going to the beach or at a beach, or maybe they'll come down to Calvert County and sit there as they're reading it and go, really, all that stuff happened here. So it's first of all, that's what it, it is true. all of that happened in this tiny, quiet community. <laughs> well, the name of the book is Cove Point on the Chesapeake. And the subtitle again, Carol, is what? The Evolution of a Sand Spit on the Chesapeake Bay. Well, if you're looking for something, or oh, a great read for the summer, <laughs> may I recommend this particular book. Carol, thank you so very much for joining us on Future City. Thank you. It was a delight. Thanks, Carol. If you want to find out more about this book and others recommended, you can go to the WYPR.org website. Our last recommendation comes from Lisa Morgan, the host of The Weekly Reader. Hi, I'm Lisa Morgan. I'm the host of The Weekly Reader on WYPR. And um, a couple of local authors who have books out this summer that I think you should take a look at are uh, Davida Breyer has Sinkhole, which is a a coming-of-age mystery with a murderous twist. Uh, Of course, Dee Watkins has a new memoir out, Black Boy Smile, which is just, I mean, a wonderful read. And Baynard Woods has a memoir called Inheritance, which explores his roots in uh, South Carolina and growing up and kind of 
getting comfortable in his own skin, which is also a great read. Thanks, Lisa. Before we go, I want to share some thoughts on summer reads. The ability to imagine unimagined worlds are often sparked by the written word. It can come in many forms, but the clearest way it manifests itself is in a book. Young people and adults are not immune from this contagious obsession of reading, especially during the summer months. Writers and readers are tied together in unique ways. The prose they create let us discover places, times, and thoughts which may not always conform to the things that we know. When you finish a book, it may pose questions or explorations. But that is the intent of the author, to get you to thinking. This summer, we hope you're reading and thinking. Thank you to today's guests for sharing their expertise and allowing us to hear their knowledge. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryant. You can listen to extended conversations with all of our guests and find out more about them by visiting WYPR.org and search for Future City. You know, we always welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at Future City, that's one word, at WYPR.org. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer, Spencer Bryant, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.